0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Cambridge Assessment. I'm Jill Elliott and I'm chairing the session today. Speaking as one who knows firsthand how when you start browsing in the Cambridge Assessment archives, you discover that things which have come up in policies that change every two or three years... You've looked back through 150 years of history and discover that the same things have come up again and again and again many times before. So it can be a really worthwhile exercise um, looking back at some of these historical documents, especially because with the benefit of hindsight, you know what happened next. So with that in mind, it gives me great pleasure to introduce today's Perspectives in Cambridge Assessment presentation organised by the Cambridge Assessment Network which is entitled The Cambridge Assessment Archives, Not Just an Historical Treasure. Now, some of you may have seen the press coverage last week. Um, There was coverage in the Cambridge Evening News. There was coverage in the Times National Newspaper about this seminar. If you're attending one of our talks for the first time as a result of this coverage, we do extend a very warm welcome to you. Those of you who've read the press coverage, particularly this article... um, will have been fascinated not just by the insights into policy and practice that the archive can present, but by the human stories which emerge from the shadows of history. Now, our speakers today, whom I'm standing in front of, um, are two people who share a vast knowledge of the history of Cambridge assessments, of education more widely, and are both very experienced commentators on the stories that emerge from the historical documents Gillian Cook has been the archivist here at Cambridge Assessment since 1996, during which time she's been responsible for overseeing the development of the archives service into the enormously rich resource it is today. Andrew Watts began his career as a teacher of English, both here and in Singapore, and has worked worked for Cambridge Assessment for nearly 20 years, including being the first director of the Cambridge Assessment Network. Andrew's now freelance, but we're always very delighted to see him back. Both Gillian and Andrew contributed chapters to the book Examining the World, published in 2008, to celebrate our organisation's 150th anniversary. And there is another copy of that book over there for people to have a look at afterwards. Over to Andrew, I think
2: it is. Well, good afternoon. I'm going to tell you a bit of the story and then Gillian's going to put in the interesting uh, thought-provoking information that you've really come to hear. And the story of the examination or public examination system in England obviously begins in China. Uh, Chinese public examinations for selecting people for the emperor's civil service could go back about 2,000 years. So they really knew something about exams. And this picture's interesting here. If ever we feel that our candidates are rather hard done by, this is an examination village And the candidates were put into those little booths for three days and and they stayed for the whole three days in order to take their examination papers in there. So we start with the Chinese imperial exams. And in the 17th century, early 17th century, a Jesuit missionary called Matteo Ricci came back from China having investigated and understood their culture a bit and he wrote uh, about this examination system that he'd he'd seen. That was picked up, the first uh, I think recorded mention in in a published uh, source anyway, Robert Burton in the book called The Anatomy of Melancholy in 1621 refers to these imperial examinations and actually he suggests it'd be a good idea to have examinations in in order to uh, appoint magistrates and so on. And actually that's the theme that goes through these very very important thinkers about the modern state and examinations in them, Adam Smith, Jeremy Bentham in the constitutional code J.S. Mill in On Liberty all suggested that examinations would be a good way to select people for government service. And indeed, uh, Gladstone, four times Prime Minister of, of, of Victorian England, uh, he is recorded in many places supporting them. And this is a little quote from a letter in which he says, the good thing about examinations is that they would uh, replace competition for private favour. It's not who your father knows who gets you into the civil service, but ability. The beginning of the meritocracy, and that's where the public exam system really arises from, the desire for a more meritocratic system. So we come to 1858 when the local examinations are formed, started off by uh, Cambridge University and Oxford U- University. Um, The railways are very important because what we've got to imagine is... venerable uh, University Don setting off from the centre of Cambridge with a wooden box in which the exam papers were going up the road on a horse-drawn carriage to the station at the end newly formed railways getting on the train and heading off and in that first year they headed off to these centres and the point about them was that they were called local examinations students who wanted to take them didn't have to come to Cambridge which is the sort of thing that would have had to happen in the past they could actually be run locally and this was the big innovation hence our legal name which is still here for Cambridge assessment the University of Cambridge local examination syndicate junior candidates about the same age as those taking GCSE and senior candidates about the same age as those taking a level there were some forerunners in England um, of the local exams. There were examinations used to accredit teachers before that. There was an exam board that was set up by teachers called the College of Preceptors, and they were setting exam papers for students to take. There were civil servants service exams which were begun in 1854 and 1855. And then the Society of Arts uh, started what they called trade exams for students who came from institutions called mechanics institutes. That's of interest in this organisation now because the Society of Arts became the Royal Society of Arts and that, is, that accounts for the R in the name OCR, R, uh, the RSA. So there were some trade exams just a year or two before the universities began their local exams. The Oxford locals got in first. For those who want some competition between Oxford and Cambridge, they uh, established their, you notice that they couldn't call it the same word as Cambridge. Theirs is a delegacy of examinations. Cambridge was a syndicate of examinations. They conducted their first exam in 1858. I put there at the bottom a uh, photograph of this clerical gentleman called uh, Temple. In fact, who ended up as Archbishop of Canterbury. But the point about him at this stage is, he was a member of Her Majesty's Inspectorate, and he was assigned the role of trying to help these uh, local examinations get off the ground. But look at the, what he's saying here: that the universities should be made to feel that they have an interest in the education of all England. And it's this involvement of the university that I think is very significant, and I think it's probably unique in England, uh, and, and in the world indeed, that it's from the universities that the examinations were run. And that's peculiarly English, or well, the Australians do it as well, or did it as well. Cambridge, well, when did they? Their first exams were in 1858, just six months later than Oxford, See how quickly they set the syndicate up. There was a deputation from schools requesting that there should be an examination system with exams set by the university. Uh, Fairly quickly, the university set up a syndicate. That was the way they got extra business done, by setting up a syndicate to devise the scheme. And uh, then the examination syndicate was formally set up in February 1858 with the first exams just in the winter of that year. Looking at the subjects that were there, they, the students had to do preliminary exams, so they all had to do those, and then choose three subjects from the other subjects that are offered there in the middle. And looking at the list, actually, it's not so very different to the sort of exams that we might see in a, in a, in, in a programme uh, still today. That would have been considered a modern curriculum, because there's quite a lot of science in there, and also because Latin and Greek are there, but they're also modern languages. The exams actually encouraged a more modern approach from the highly classical approach uh, that had gone before. Two little differences between Oxford and Cambridge that I think are quite interesting. Originally, they were actually going to award an AA. So you've got MA, BA, and AA, Associate of Arts. And Oxford did do that until about the First World War. You could actually claim you've got an AA from Oxford. Cambridge never did that, and uh, in fact, it was the reason why Cambridge and Oxford couldn't to collaborate any more closely than they did. The other thing I've already mentioned, the timing of exams, Oxford took the summer session and Cambridge took the winter session in December. That was how they, they differentiated I just thought it would be worth mentioning something about the, the way the, the organisation built up. And I've put a photograph here of this chap, George Forrest Brown, who was the first long-serving uh, secretary, as he was called then, chief executive. He served for 22 years, whereas the people before him had just served for one or two years. And he came from St. Catherine's College, which that's the photo there, and uh, actually ran the, the syndicate from his room, in the in the in the college and after a while was given in order to take account for all the extra work he was doing was actually given an extra room (laughs) so two rooms from within a college his portrait is up there on that wall actually for those that you can see Uh, those that can see it. However, uh, things progressed, and in 1886, uh, the syndicate buildings opened. This is in Mill Lane, so if you go to get your punt from Scudamore's, uh, you will pass this building, and this was built with the proceeds of the examinations, and so the Examinations syndicate had their own headquarters. This is what the building looks like now. It looks pretty grim, actually, doesn't it? But there it is still. Notice, actually, two little decorations at the top and uh, a third was added a bit later on so this is syndicate buildings and this is where the exam board was until the mid um, until the mid 1960s when it moved to this building i hope you'll recognize it because we're we're pretty close to it if you stand in the car park behind number one hills road you'll see these buildings this was the Purse School for Boys. And in the mid-1960s, the exam syndicate took it over. Expansion, well, there are some numbers from 1858 to 1878, 20 years. Girls uh, came in during that time. I'm going to mention girls uh, shortly. And also, pretty quickly, the syndicate began examining overseas. You can see some dates there, requests from various places in the Uh, in the Commonwealth, uh, where people were asking, can we do exams as well? By 1898, after uh, 40 years, 30 overseas centres and 1,220 candidates. All of these numbers are fairly small compared to now, the numbers of candidates, but uh, a steady growth there. Was it an international curriculum? I don't think so, really. It was a very Anglo-centric curriculum. Certainly fairly early on, other languages were being assessed, but uh, it was very much from the, a British point of view. A British person learning Tamil or a British person learning Hindu would, would uh, study in this way. It took a while for the syndicate to be taking on board partnerships with, uh, with local uh, education lists and boards. Just one more thing to say in my first bit here. The influence of examinations on girls. This lady over there is Miss Bus a famous uh, female head teacher in the Victorian period. And uh, right from the very beginning, she wanted the girls in her school to be able to take the exams. At first, girls were not allowed to. It was just the boys for a few years. But then... uh, after, after, in, the, in the 1860s girls too were given a chance temporarily anyway to have a go at the exams and of course nobody could think of a good reason why girls shouldn't take the exam and then they began to find that girls could do just as well as boys or even better and nobody could possibly say that girls shouldn't take exams and the historian J.R. Roach as you can see at the bottom there said that this was one of the key levers of actually establishing girls education in the, in the country was that girls competing on an equal basis with boys and examination was a tremendous uh, boost for the cause of women's education. Gillian's going to mention women's education later, but that's in her part now. I'm going to stop and Gillian's going to take over.
0: Um, thank you. I'm going to um, talk about what we hold in the archives in relation to, to the history ...of Cambridge Assessment... ...and uh, show that what we have in the archives... ...represents continuity and change. Um, some of the earliest archives... ...are held at the University Library... Um, ...but the Cambridge Assessment Group Archives... ...holds about 850 linear metres of archives... ...going back to the 1870s. Um, the Group Archives... ...sits within the Assessment, Research and Development Division... ...and it's a rich and surprisingly varied resource. Um, I want to show you what the archives can reveal... Showing aspects of, of continuity and change in this in this presentation, and later on in corporate legacy and social commentary um, in this section i 'm going to divide into three areas: the university syndics and examiners is the first area. Um, we were set up as a department of the university um, and still are as a, a department of the university. Um, it's been a constant presence since we were set up in 1858, but the relationship has shifted. Um, despite uh, an enduring mutual respect, the syndics were and still are the governing body of the organisation. This image shows the opening of the building um, at number 1 Hills Road, then Syndicate Buildings, uh, in 1965, and it was presided over by the Vice-Chancellor, Reverend J. Boyesmith. He was the first vice-chancellor not to be chairman of the syndics in 1965. The syndics and the general secretary, T.S. Wyatt, are wearing university gowns, and you can see the distinction between the, the officers and the, and the staff or the assistants. At the bottom here, we've got an extract from the syndicate minutes, um, which reveals a shifting relationship and an increased autonomy for the university. This is taken in 1921, and under schemes mentioned to relieve the V.C., Uh, the Secretary could sign cheques up to £100, um, except salary cheques. And it's interesting to note that um, the employees of the local exam syndicate, as as was, were university employees up until the 1990s. Um, The syndicate minutes um, are obviously very, very interesting in showing both continuity and change. Here we've got an extract Um, That is quite easy to date because of its reference to the school certificate. Um, But actually, in the first paragraph, you can see many enduring features from the syndics. Um, It mentions the special position of the syndics, the long experience, their wide membership. And there's a hint also of a difficult relationship with the government, asking for an assurance that the official views of the university will be sought and taken into account. And this is all to do with the setting up of new type of examinations in actually 1943 when they're looking at the, the abolition of the school certificate examinations and ultimately the creation of the, the GCE exams. As a result of this, um, the secretary of the syndicate, was um, Nalda Williams, was actually appointed to the committee and was instrumental in setting up the new exams. So um, to give the syndics credit that their appeal did actually bear fruit. Um, now the syndics viewed themselves as um, experts in the field of examining, and justifiably so, because if you look at this list of the syndics and the examiners in 1858, you can see that the syndics were the examiners in many, ex- to many, to a great extent. Um, you have that many of the same names. Emery, Living, Latham, Roby, Lamb, Montague Butler, Hopkins. Um, and I could go on. There are so many similar names across there. Also the list of presiding examiners who put the, the local into the title of local exams because they went and took the exams. And many of the three lists contain similar names. Um, the process of examining itself um, was... Not dissimilar to how it is today. Um, Standards books reveal that the process of standards fixing for specific subjects was carried out after each set of exams. Even in the 1880s, standards clearly was, um, the standard setting was clearly quite a a rigorous process. Um, As you you might be able to point out at the bottom of the asterisk here, it says uh, examiners were equally divided as to whether or not there should be a difference of standard according to the number of subjects taken. And this is in our our standards book from from 1882. We also hold examiners' books which include comments about the examiners, many open and critical, um, despite the perceived high status of the examiners. So they were also judged. And at the bottom there, we've got the extract from 1902, marked papers without having read the schedule. It's a bit bit dodgy there. And uh, most of the first draft of his paper, um, this is the history of, of the British Empire, was outside the set period. And in other respects, the instructions were disregarded. So um, I think that, that examiner didn't, didn't last long. Um, looking more recently, this is an, an image of examiners in the 1980s and a comment taken very recently from an examiner of 50 years. Um, interestingly, within living memory, the, the, dist- the difference between examiners... Um, um, then and now probably looks more stark than it did from the earlier illustrations from the 1880s. The uh, second section is examinations which is in some ways the essence of the um, of the organisation. It's worth noting that for the first 140 years we were considered an examination board. Um, these are two examples of question papers, both history question papers. One is 1907 and the other is an um, IGCSE um, examination paper from 1989. So both history papers aimed at under-16s for overseas candidates. The Cambridge Junior paper in 1907 was the same paper set for overseas candidates and for UK candidates at that time. Um, Candidates had to choose from the history, a paper from the history and geography section and they they had to choose from history of England, Roman history or history on the British Empire. The question... Um, The question paper might look similar to question papers today, but in terms of length, style, mark allocation, there are no no suggested um, expectations on the 1907 paper compared to the 1989 IGCSE one. In 1918, the first regulations um, of the national exams were published. Um, What's interesting here is that... um, Uckles is starting to lose its its autonomy and this becomes apparent in the regulations as um, you can see a a form of resistance to the imposed national regulation and Uckels notes that the candidates need to enter for both types of examination. It says candidates for the junior school certificate must enter also as candidates for the junior local exams. Um, And in... 1951, the school certificate, the first national exams, were abolished in favour of the general certificate in education. Here we have a list of, the, um, of subjects available in 1958. Um, there are a number of interestingly different subjects listed in, in 1958, um, although some of them do look familiar. There's navigation, there's Bible knowledge, engineering science, agricultural science. There's also Latin, right, that they at the top. Um, The other image shows economics and public affairs A-level. There are questions that are relevant today um, that you could answer, certainly question five on the index of retail prices and reflecting changes to the purchasing power of the pound, um, which you could, in theory, ask as a a current question, a contemporary question. Um, Processing candidate results... We have in the archives the pass lists or the, the class lists, as there were, and also the raw um, pass lists as well and so the, the one on the on the left shows the um, the mark books, and they, these would be converted into the class lists. Obviously, an awful lot of administrative, meticulous, detailed work went into producing these as the, the quote at the bottom indicates. The exams were actually graded similar to degrees in terms of honors and ordinary levels class 1 class 2 class 3 and were ranked accordingly on the pass lists and we have the uh, results going back to 19 going up to 1950 in the group archives account books look remarkably similar although Everything's on a tiny, tiny scale. So here, for example, you've got the um, accounts for the Certificate of Proficiency exams or the English, Cambridge English exams, setting £16, pounds, marking £22, pounds. the total printing less than £17. Pounds. This is for 1932. Everything's there, but it's on a very, very tiny scale. Um, Needless to say, developing technology has been very important, very key to the growth of the organisation. The quote there, taken in the 1990s, mm, probably you could say the same thing today, or you could say the same thing, that, you know, everyone, when there's computerization, when there's another development in technology, people think that they're all going to be losing their jobs, but actually often it seems to, to, to generate more. Um, the data processing manager advert there um, once a, a graduate between 35 and 45 with a progressive career record in the computer industry and talks of the IBM 430-4300. Um, um, an establishment of over 40 data processing staff, it, again, shows the scale of the organisation. Um, and the, the image shows um, somebody in the new data processing imp- um, working on the, on the new punch card system in the 1950s. the last section on expansion Um, obviously the the annual reports are fantastic in in charting growth of the the organisation the one on the left is the seventh annual report Um, and it records at the end of the first paragraph that exams were for the first time, held overseas, successfully held in Trinidad. Um, it also alludes to the uncertainty of the first two or three years, um, and um, which is perhaps perhaps quite telling. Um, and you start to realise that that the exams took took a while to to consolidate. Um, this one on the right is part of a survey of. English exams from 1944 and shows tremendous expansion, the first great expansion of the English exams during 1944 when they were tapping into um, a candidature of um, Allied personnel um, during the Second World War. Uh, Diversity, we haven't always been looking at vocational exams. Even in um, 1869, we were in correspondence with the General Medical Council about running examinations, matriculation examinations for um, candidates um, going into into, um, medical careers. Um, This image on the right shows candidates, um, the Tripos candidates from 1885 from Newnham College. Um, there are 21 women there and 18 of whom appear on the Cambridge higher exams pass lists for the previous three years. So most of the candidates there had been through the Cambridge higher exam system which was set up um, predominantly to um, examine women at aged 18 who were going on to become teachers Um, overseas expansion took off after the Second World War with a varied number of ...regional examination councils which were set up. There were councils set up for Malay, Oriental languages... ...African languages, India and Pakistan... ...East and Central Africa, West Africa and the West Indies. And this is an extract from the East and Central Africa Committee. Um, it mentions too under African languages... ...that it was felt to be unsatisfactory to require... ...that a language must be spoken by as many as half a million people... ...before consideration will be given to it as an examination subject... So it shows a growing willingness to broaden the curriculum um, to to a minority of people. Gone were the days when you expected candidates just to take the the examination that was for all. Um, After the Second World War, there was a move to localise from uh, overseas examinations councils. And the West African examinations council, pictured here, um, was the first to... Achieve localization in 1964. It's a ex- uh, picture of the headquarters in Lagos. Um, there are examples of question papers as well. There's a, a geography question paper, which is interesting in, uh, in its target audience as much as anything. Um, it was for candidates in Nyasaland and um, Rhodesia, which, of course, you know, Zimbabwe and Malawi today. So it, it dates it instantly. The, the one in the middle is a qualifying test for Malaya, which candidates had to pass before taking the Cambridge exams. Um, We have also merged with other boards during the 1990s. There was a consolidation of the exam boards in the UK and we merged with other boards of Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge and the regional boards of the East and West Midlands. They brought their own traditions um, and legacies. And in this case, we've got the MEI Maths, which is Mathematics in Education and Industry project. Um, which was begun in 1964, and these are, are the minutes discussing the development of the single A-level maths in 1965. It states that the MEI syllabus is middle of the road between normal and SMP, but the presiders think it too heavy, but many boys, boys you know rather than candidates, um, will have done the MEI additional maths at O-level. And uh, this, has, this grew and developed, and, of course, you know, there's an example of a paper from 1997... So, I'm coming to the end of this one now. Um, I think you could agree that certainly from those examples, there's continuity and change. The logos, top and bottom, show how dramatically things have changed. But the comment in the middle, I think, is, um, is very pertinent, shows that there are similarities, that we are still essentially doing the same, same sort of things, and um, we have the same sort of accountabilities. So um, thank you for listening, and I've now got a quiz, short quiz, <laughs> which um, I thought you might uh, you might like to have a go at. Uh, I haven't shown any examiners' reports in either of my presentations, but I think they're fascinating yet a largely underused area of the archives. So I've set the short quiz based on the examiners' reports, um, extracts from the examiners' reports over a 150-year uh, period, um, and needless to say. Um, the point I'm illustrating is, is continuity and change. And, um, and some of these are, if you like, deliberately obscure. So it they, they, they will be quite difficult. And I don't want you to take this too seriously. Right, OK, so the first one. Um, any ideas? What? Any years? Anyone want to have a guess at any of the years? 27. 27. No, that's 1989. German A level. <laughs> right. Um, second one the chief causes of failure Nineteen. sorry 1877 no 1927 geography junior exams that one right the next one I think is probably the easiest of the lot The result- 77. sorry 1877 yeah. well done yeah spot on yeah so that one's 1877 I think the, the, the Latin is the giveaway and the sort of the, um, the short, sort of brief damning of the candidate is probably a bit of a giveaway for that one. The too-often question to the handle was incomplete or hurriedly sketched. It's a woodwork exam. 59,
2: 59
0: yes, that's right, yeah. Um, it's getting easier, isn't it, because there aren't so many years <laughs> left. Um, so see uh, the, the next one, in the uh, description of experiments, the instructions given were often incomplete and the essential steps required to obtain. Oh, it was
2: 1902,
0: senior exams for 1902. So the last one, of course, is the 2011 one, which again, once again, it should be noted that the best answers were those fully responding to the questions. If they just you know, um, quoted the last 150 years. So there we are. But what is amazing is that, again and again, it's saying, why don't the candidates read the question instead of just regurgitating everything they know? And all those different subjects and different levels. So looking at the the role of the archives, I want to look at uh, corporate legacy and social commentary. I want to try and prove that the archives does both. Um, Quickly looking at corporate legacy, I think any archive worth its salt is going to be able to achieve this. So we have the sort of things in the archives that one would expect in in any self-respecting archive. Um, We have graces, which are university laws, and this is the grace for the setting up of the archives in 1850. Setting up of the setting up of the uh, local examinations in 1857. Um, We have governance and legal documents. So we hold um, the syndicate minutes, as I said, the the governing body minutes, and we hold we hold um, property deeds. we hold the regulations, which are to many extent at the core of the, the sort of essence of our accountability to the candidate. Um, yes, they change very, you know, hugely from 1858, as the first regulations show, to these in 1995, but they are still the regulations. Interestingly, um, the, the comment at the bottom there that... The candidate, any candidate to the examinations will require to pay a fee of 20 shillings if there were any doubt that the examinations were open to all in those first years. Um, I, um, I looked up the affordability of 20 shillings in 1858, and it came out as about £900. So the exams were clearly not aimed at, at all. Um, outreach, early forms of outreach. Here's an... Um, exhibition from 1902 um, sent to Paris which shows the extent the examinations had grown just in the first 50 years and this is an organizational diagram from 1965 Um, looks like it working needing improvement but was actually published in in a in a public document. Um, Annual reports and statistics, again, crucial for an organisation, to give you a snapshot in time, but also in the completeness, show you the progression of an organisation and its development, um, which, again, we hold in the archives in the the reading room. Um, We can subscribe to the Janus online catalogue, which is a university library-hosted website, which brings together the archives in the Cambridge area and there is a Cambridge Assessment Archives page where we have um, our archive catalogues uploaded on there. We also have other archive catalogues available if you contact us directly but this gives you an overview of what's held. So now, having looked at the corporate legacy... I want to interpret those into um, social commentary. So I've I've shown these these two images. um, The top one showing the volumes in the archives, and interestingly, that is all the staff in 1953. Every not not you know from one area. So it's the whole of what would you like, you know, UK, overseas, Cambridge English exams, all of them together. Um, So I've run on ahead of my notes. Um, special considerations are not new, and this is an illustration from a letter book in 1891 to um, a centre in Manchester talking of the special considerations to accommodate a blind boy in um, 1891. Not only a blind boy, but a blind boy in an orphanage. Um, and uh, it, it states We are prepared to authorise his answering the questions in the Braille type. Someone will have to prov- be provided who can sit beside him and read him the questions as he reaches them in turn. Um, I looked up this this particular candidate and he appears on the pass list for that year. So he carried out the exam and he successfully passed, um, which is a a really nice story and shows that um, there was a certain amount of compassion in the exams even in the early days. Um, Staff news. uh, We hold... Staff news um, in the early um, annual reports, which is a very useful snippet in the top there as an, as an example from the 1970s. Um, and then we introduced a staff newsletter in 1958, which, um, which here we, we've got this um, panel, and it was written by J.L. Brereton, who was the, the, the then secretary. Um, who says, in this modern age, uh, there are many experts at hand to advise about machines and building, but few to help in the more vital questions of human cooperation on which all else depends. They're starting to um, look at the um, nurturing of, of the staff as an actual body. And this developed into a staff newsletter um, as an extract down there at the bottom, which is very dated because it has a recipe for angel delight in it, but uh, we're using angel delight. Um, We have some correspondence in the archive, notably some letters sent to John Neville Keynes, who was our secretary, and the father of Maynard Keynes. He was our secretary in the 1890s, and he received and kept slightly quirky correspondence. Uh, This particular letter I'll read out because it's... Particularly interesting. Uh, I know my examinations are bad, but if the considerations that I'm a foreigner and Italian and that I, am, I extremely want a certificate as a title which may be useful to me and get me some place for English teaching in Italy, I can modify, can modify the judgment of the examiners. I entreat you to lay them before the commission. If I could have this certificate, all my troubles should be at an end. The (laughs) the value it has would soon enable me to teach English, at least in private families and later on in schools. I feel sure I shall not use it unworthily. Now, I think as a social commentary, that has... A comment on so many levels. The value of the Cambridge Certificate, you know, as a title, useful to me. The perceived status of the foreigner, you know, he says, uh, I'm Italian. Um, The standard of teaching expected in schools as against private families, you know. He only wants to get into private families who are obviously low grade and then eventually into schools. Um, The status of the examiners, you know, I entreat you to lay, lay this before them. And the misunderstanding of what the examinations were for. Also, I think you could comment, what's the thinking behind the letter's retention and inclusion in Keynes' scrapbook? Did he keep it as a serious reminder of accountability or was it as some humorous, light-hearted entry? So, uh, the impact of war. I've chosen two question papers here looking at at the examinations during the war. One's a school certificate in European history for 1942. Interestingly, the um, curriculum of history... In the 1930s, only went up to 1914. There were no questions on the First World War at all until 1942, when the regulations stated that the Syndicate were prepared to consider on application the provision of an alternative paper on European history, 1871 to 1939. There were obviously candidates because the paper was written. And the paper not only includes why was Germany defeated in the the Great War of 1914 to 1918, but also a question on the collapse of France in 1940, which actually, out of the the period that it was supposed to be. Um, This physics paper, uh, this question was spotted by um, researchers from the physics department at the university. Question five, um, why does the note heard while a bomb drops, um, dropping while a, a, a bomb falls, dropping pitch as the bomb nears the ground. What sort of question would you ask? You know, you wouldn't ask 16-year-olds nowadays, well, no, it's advanced standards, so it's higher. You wouldn't ask candidates these days the sound intonation of a bomb dropping near the ground because you wouldn't assume that they'd know about that. Um, also, the questions in context. The senior hygiene paper, just at the end of the First World War and after the flu epidemic... There are questions on, on alcohol, um, avoiding typhoid, uh, the safety of tinned meat, and also ventilation. I think very um, pertinent to the time. The O-Level paper in 1976 refers to industrial unrest in the car industry, although it was surprisingly hard to find something that, that was relevant um, to everyday life in, the, in these English O-Level papers. It wasn't so hard to find the hygiene paper. Um, Contemporary sources in the archives, I think, are are fantastic. We've got this extract from the Journal of Education in 1893, which condemns the exams indefensible that the timetable should um, require candidates to be working through the night, so many hours. So it's seven and a half hours of paperwork in one day and then um, a practical exam at night. And also what is so fantastic is that we've actually got the timetable in the archives to actually prove, to show alongside the article what the candidates were required to do. So I think it's great when you can match things up from different areas like that. There are also incidental comments. Um, on the left, we've got some reports of headmistresses' um, conference, which is interesting in itself, but what's particularly interesting is the asterisk at the top refers to this comment at the bottom. This is 1917, and it says that the uh, one of the committee members was late at the meeting um, because of a... Um, um, because of a serious air raid in London. So you can date that and time that and work out what was going on. This one on the, on the right is a report from um, Jay Roach, who did a, a European tour in 1937 um, to promote the Cambridge English exams. And he adds incidental comments, such as uh, details about Zagreb, a town of nearly 300,000, and the capital of the Croats, is distinct from the Serbs. Again, okay, this, is, this is 1937. Really useful, really nice incidental comment. Cultural stereotypes um, abound in the archives, but particularly easy to find within the Cambridge English collection. Um, There we've got an example from the British Life and Institutions paper from the Certificate of Proficiency in English. Um, Questions um, on licensing laws, for example, on page 13. On the right, you've got quite an outrageous list of cultural stereotypes um, from an oral examination report in 1973 talking of the monotonous intonation patterns of the swiss germans and tendency for overconfidence in the spanish which is quite shocking really and direct and it's astonishing that it's 1973 so um women in education i've nearly finished by the way andrew <laughs> sorry um The higher local exams were aimed particularly at women. And uh, and here you've got in the regulations, it mentions the need for a local committee of ladies to run the examinations for women and that the men and the women need to be segregated during the actual examinations. The comment below is from a female syndic from the 1980s um, and the image taken from 1955 standard setting, which I think is outside as well on a board... Um, (coughs) But I think, you know, you you can pick up so many things of what what was expected, what was perceived of women. In the last couple, I just want to highlight um, the use of of photographs and photography and, obviously photographs are not prevalent in the archives, particularly the older photographs. It's not a very photogenic organisation, being an exam board. Um, and we are desperate to acquire as many photographs as, as we can. Um, this one, you know, a lovely photograph, but we don't really know much about it. We guess it's about 1910. It's, um, it's got a comment, Shanghai, with a question mark on the back. So, I don't know, maybe it was taken in a Shanghai schoolroom. Um, the the um, comment at the bottom... adds adds a bit of depth to it and was taken from an oral history interview I did from somebody in the 1960s who was supervising an elderly invigilator, former examiner. Moving on, obviously from that comment, oral history adds a lot of depth and interest and um, colour to the archives. And it's great to be able to talk to people about what they know, um, about what went on during their time. And and it adds an extra dimension. So um, we do have an active oral history programme and we interview people... um, if, if we can get the chance um, this is a really nice comment from somebody who was an officer and he's talking about secretary's teas which was a daily ritual for officers in the uh, in the sort of um, well pre 19 mid pre 1980s and uh, early networking i suppose so here we are Cambridge Assessment Archive Service um, do come and visit us do write if you have any queries and um, Uh, we can then accommodate you as a a researcher to come and use the archives, either at the reading room or come and um, make an appointment and actually go through the catalogues and we can produce archive material for you. I'm going to hand over to Andrew, who's going to do his part two.
2: Part two, that's part two of what I'm doing, don't worry, we are aiming to end at five.
0: This isn't just part two, (laughs) this is is part four
2: actually. Um, I I, I would like to... to to have some thoughts about, well, what's all this amount to and reflect on what we've heard. The first thing that I would want to say is that examinations in this country grew as a result of demand from schools. The schools wanted an external standard. And I've got here a few schools from the early 19th century And at that time, they were often referred to as middle-class schools. They were the the very posh public schools. They were for the upper classes. And I'm afraid for the lower classes, they were simply elementary schools. And it was assumed that those children would leave school at 13 and 14 and wouldn't have any secondary education. But there was a large body of so-called middle-class students who were going to all sorts of small schools uh, whose standard was somewhat dubious. This is Warwick Parish Church, and in the corner there's a little door, and the kids went into to a school that was in, run in the church. This was an old grammar school in Chelmsford, not looking in very good shape in the early 19th century. And this is actually a very famous school, if you've read Jane Eyre. Uh, it's the school that Jane Eyre goes to, and it was actually based on, uh, on, on the school where her, the author, Charlotte Bronte, went to school. Horrible school, actually. and <laughs> They were treated it very badly. Uh, It was just the home of the local vicar. I think at that time actually there may be, it may be correct to say there were more schools in England then than there are now because there were so many very small ones and the standards were not good. Now, that's sort of the, the first quarter of the 19th century. By the time you get to the last quarter of the 19th century, these wonderful educational edifices had arrived. I showed you the parish church in Warwick. This is Warwick Grammar School. And this is Bristol Grammar School. And... The, those are two schools that actually took Cambridge exams more or less from the beginning. And the point that I'm making is that in the 19th century, there was a huge improvement in education. People really got stuck in. And the examination system was part of a real a national attempt uh, to, to improve education. As you see, I mean the, the, the new buildings look like serious educational establishments. So the first thing I'm saying is that there was a movement that came from within the education system itself, from within schools, that an external standard would be something that would help them to improve education for the kids in them. Gillian's mentioned the examiners. I've dug out a few pictures of them, which I rather like. This is Professor C.C. Babington. He was professor of botany here for 30 years. He was a correspondent of Charles Darwin, a really considerable academic, and yet he was one of the first examiners in the Cambridge exams. This is a chap called J.B. Lightfoot, a very eminent New Testament scholar. I think if you studied theology, you would still refer to his work. And this is uh, the, the musician, whose name is now slipping out of my mind, um, uh, Sterndale Bennett, isn't it? William Sterndale Bennett, uh, and also Professor of Music. And he was the history examiner. These two guys ended up as heads of their colleges, this one of Trinity Hall and this one of Trinity College. What on earth were these very eminent people doing as examiners of a local examination syndicate? Well, they believed that this was a key movement in order to help improve the quality of education. I gave you a quotation earlier from Temple. Uh, You remember that the universities should feel they have a responsibility for the standard of education in the country as a whole. And these people demonstrated their commitment to it. The point that I want to make is that the exam system grew from an educating community. These people were interested in theology, in science, in music, and that that was their motivation. It wasn't a bureaucratic, it wasn't a government scheme, it was something to do with people who really valued education and learning. The, I mentioned some of the names here. I've just put this up with this rather nice little detail about the facts of the, how things were run. And First, right at the beginning, exams were, examiners were paid by the difficulty of the subject and the weight of the scripts that they marked. So in 1860s, for each pound weight... Markers of arithmetic, nine shillings. And sixpence of history, 12 shillings. And classics, 18 shillings. Very difficult subject. Uh, But uh, I don't know whether they all did the same number of of answer sheets as well. But it's an interesting fact. I shall come back to that. The examiners were people who truly believed in education. And that is where the exam system came from. The third point that I would reflect on is the interest... In the exam board's independence... And to be linked to the university seemed to be a way of guaranteeing the board's independence. Actually, London University was in there earlier than Oxford and Cambridge because they had an entrance exam which a lot of students used to take even though they had no intention of going to London University, but they wanted something at the end of their school career. And so the London University matriculation exam had already had some sort of uh, influence within the the system but again exam linked to the university so when Durham was set up they were given as part of their charter the uh, the, the challenge to run examinations and victoria university this was a, an amalgamation of colleges in liverpool manchester and leeds when that was set up again they were given the responsibility of running examinations for schools even happened actually in glasgow in in scotland too but in scotland uh towards the end of the 19th century scotland had a national examination system that was run separately from the universities but i think it's interesting that in england the exam system was actually the 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 the, the, the role of the of the universities cambridge is the last of that uh but I think it actually the issue of independence of the exam board is something that one should reflect on, and uh, that's that's the way it was done in England in those days. Here's a radical MP's view. This is a man, is a liberal MP called Oberon. Uh, Oberon Herbert, noticed the symposium that he's organized, the sacrifice of education to examination. would Ring a few bells. That was 1889. And notice that what he objected to in the uh, rapidly growing examination system was the possibility that it could be used as a tool of central control. And what he wanted to see was a society in which I suppose independent institutions were able to uh, thrive and to innovate and uh, not to have everything, uh, as you say, centralised. I don't know what Nick Clegg would think about this as Liberal Party policy now, but, um, well, yes, he might, might approve. But um, the independence of the exam boards is the point that I'm making here. One of the things that fascinates me Looking back into the 19th century, is that all the criticisms that are made of the exams now were made then. So you can't read anything new if you go back to 1860, 1870. They will have been complaining about the sort of things that people complain about. Now, these sort of things, uh, if you look at the journals of education, what the teachers were saying, this is, this is the sort of comment that was made. And it's uh, of interest, why is it that we still have exams then if uh, we've, we've been complaining about them for so long? The government, of course, has tried to to respond to the criticisms. I've put up the three key education acts. 1870 was the Foster Education Act, which actually set up the system that meant we had a a system of primary education in this country. It's not so long ago, actually. And then the Balfour Act was the act which again provided the framework for a secondary education system for students. And then it was the, the one in the end of the Second World War, the 1944 Education Act, that established uh, the tripartite system. And later it was the, in, the 18, in the 1980s where we went on to comprehensive education. This was the act that, that led to the bringing in of O-level and A-levels. But... It, in each of these stages, the government is trying to manage, trying to control the system, or trying to work with the system, and yet at each of these stages, they always ended up by working alongside the universities uh, rather than necessarily trying to take over what the universities was doing. I, I think that quote's quite interesting. You notice that's towards the end of the 19th century. This was the Royal Commission that thought about the steps which would lead to the setting up of a secondary uh, a exa- uh, secondary school system in the country. And there's obviously the debate is going on as to whether there should be a central examination board in this, uh, uh, that that would be one of the uh, responsibilities that would be given to a government department. And notice that they're actually, the commission is actually turning that down. And it talks here rather interestingly of the concept of elasticity. According to the English conception of variety and elasticity in educational organisation, this is a function laying out the outline of an exam system which, though important, is not large. In other words, we can leave uh, really the exam system to the universities. It's interesting to reflect on that. I think another point that I'd make, and Gillian's alluded to this, is that how um, how deeply embedded in the culture the examination system is. I've put this up because, as Gillian's already said, people carried on taking exams through the Blitz. So, in the archives, there are reports from head teachers about how the examinations of their their pupils were affected by bombing, and their comments like. This child was on fire watch duty all night. This child's home was bombed. This child came to school having had to borrow clothes because they lost the clothing in a bombing raid. This child's grandparents died during, you know, in the period running up to the exam. And yet the exams carried on. (laughs) Nobody said, well, let's stop doing exams for for the period of the war suggested suggests that exams by then almost was a part of normal life and, and to keep the exams going was perhaps one way of saying, you know, we're not going to be overwhelmed by, by the war. And now here's what your, your comment. This is a little uh, picture of um, an internment camp in Singapore in a place called Syme Road. Syme Road's still there in Singapore. And there was a, an education officer there called Mr. Cheeseman and he found in the camp there, mainly women, of course, and the children of um, British and others who were still in Japan when, when it was taken over. And so Mr. Cheeseman decided that the thing to do was to try to run a school in the camp. And he actually got them to do exams, these kids, in, the, in this internment camp. And he, uh, he writes a letter after the war to the syndicate saying, this is what I've done. Would you give these kids a certificate? Because I got them to to do this uh, with the promise that their efforts would be rewarded. And this is these are some of the things that he mentions. Is you saying to the syndicate? Well, you can imagine what it was like trying to do exams in those conditions. These sort of things were there, and. Uh, So, and I like this, at the end of his report, he said, despite all this, the regulations of the syndicate regarding the conduct of examinations were strictly followed. Uh, And the syndicate actually did give certificates to the kids who had taken their exams at that time. Again, I think this suggests how deeply the exam system was embedded in the minds of people, that actually it was almost a a way of of showing that life could somehow go on in a normal sort of way. We take the exams during these periods. Another point that I would want to make is the relationship of the candidate to the examiner. And of course now we have a mass system. In the 19th century, the the people setting these systems up had absolutely no idea of how many people would be taking exams. They certainly didn't imagine that all secondary students would take the exams. They thought that a minority would, in fact. But you have this rather nice letter, which I'm going to read to you if you can't read it out. Um, This is a a student, it must be a boy, I think, at the end of of a boarding school term coming up to Christmas. Not doing very well in the exam, I'm afraid. I'm sorry I have uh, do such a bad paper, but I never did know much trigonometry. (laughs) We are all rather excited today, since all the other boys have gone home this morning, while we have had to stop till now for the exam. So you will be able to understand under what conditions we are doing your exam, when you have learnt that we have been here 14 weeks on Monday at a stretch and that we will be in the train in a few few hours. I don't suppose I must wait to write any more, but wishing you a Merry Christmas and prosperous New Year, I remain yours truly, 4733. No personalising note to the examiner. Then, P.S., I am sending you a few blank sheets, since I believe you are paid by weight. (laughs) Very nice. Uh, Wonderful. Uh, Early in the setting up of the exam uh, system, actually, the students did meet the examiner. Um, there were people who argued that that was one of the good, good ideas about taking the exam, that you could meet the examiner. And very early on in the Society of Arts examiners, which later became RSA, they actually had the idea that the students would not only do written papers, but they would actually have an oral paper with the exam. Well, it's impossible <laughs> once it started to grow to carry on like that. But that idea of the candidate as an individual who's treated as an individual by the examiner. And I think that probably certainly lingered for a long time. What's the situation now in a mass exam system when the, uh, when the number of candidates is so enormous? Can we in any way hold on to something about this kind of act of communication between the candidate and the examiner, or have we lost it? That's an interesting question thought for you to to contemplate so there we are the exams were a a demand from within schools for external standards they grew from within educating communities I'd include uh, the vocational uh, examinations of the Society of Arts in that there were communities of people teaching people chemistry or whatever it was that they were learning in the mechanics institutes these were the people who wanted to set examinations Throughout the English system, there's always been this idea that it's a good thing for the exam boards to be independent, and that's why they valued the link with the universities. The criticisms have remained and continued, and yet somehow we still have exams. More people take exams every year. There's something about a national commitment to exams, maybe even sort of something... International about people wanting to take exams at the age of 16 and 18 to somehow demonstrate what they can do on their own without uh, others necessarily helping them very much. And finally, uh, a sort of challenge that we have in those days, a picture of an individual taking the exam, somehow communicating with an examiner. Is that something we could continue to hold on to? Have we lost it? I don't know. Jill, you want to take over, I think.
1: I think it's now five to five, so it's probably about time we brought the formal part of this seminar to a close. And just as a kind of closing comment, I mean, what struck me today listening to you is that it's not just about the content of the archive, it's about people using it and bringing it to life, which is what Andrew and Gillian have done so very splendidly this afternoon. So perhaps we can thank them in the usual way.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgesessment.org.uk.